Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Table Talk. I'm Kieran Paul and you may have noticed that I actually didn't say World Snooker's Table Talk because World Snooker is changing to the WST. That's the World Snooker Tour. Right now I am sat next to Barry Hearn on a sofa in his office in Essex and he's here to tell us all about the change. So first of all, uh, Barry, though, I've got to talk about this room. So you've got you've got the two chandeliers. I mean, people probably don't want to know about the chandeliers, but they do want to know about the Muhammad Ali signed gloves over there. You've got Anthony Joshua stuff. You've got an Anthony Joshua belt. I plonked my podcast kit just right by one of his belts. Um, and you've got a Pele shirt as well there. Uh, what, what's, what's your favourite of all these things? To get on the wall in my office means it's got to be something really special because if you go back over my 45 years of promoting sport, I've probably done, I don't know, 100,000 events. <laughs> so to be selective, to get wall space is really important. So Ali, obviously, because... He was Muhammad Ali, and when I grew up, I wanted to be heavyweight champion of the world, same as you wanted to be world snooker champion. Unfortunately, we both found out that we weren't particularly good at it, so we sort of passed over Anthony Joshua because he's Anthony Joshua. He's just one of the most loveliest man and a great fighter, and to see him on his journey from gold medal in the Olympics to being a two-time world boxing champion has been special. A little picture of my house where I live because I do spend some time there, though I spend much too much time here. And what's this big painting there in the middle? That was that's an original Italian painting of billiards from the Renaissance period, if you like. And uh, the funny story was, someone owed me a lot of money. I won't say his name, but I don't like people that owe me money. And he didn't have any, but he had that picture, and I thought, I like that picture. So it's got happy memories. I didn't get paid, but I got a nice piece of work of art. Oh, so if I ever owe you money, can I just paint yeah, you something? Yeah, if you can paint a really nice picture. Mm. If not, I will probably bounce you up and downstairs. You would actually repay me in probably six or seven stand-up comedy acts at, at, at yeah, venue, a venues yeah. to be announced, oh, you know, and that, that, would be, that would be kind of you. Um, <laughs> so we're not actually here, though, to talk about paintings. That would be an entirely different podcast, one that we may be able to do sometime. Um, we want to talk about the rebrand. Uh, so can you just tell us the reasons for it? Well, I think, you know, we're coming to the end of a 10-year term, a 10-year cycle of uh, my control of World Snooker, which I've enjoyed enormously. And we're reflective in as far as looking at the progress we've made, some mistakes we've made and some very good decisions we've made because no one's perfect, not even me. And it really, really hate to say that. But on reflection, we think we've, we've done extremely well to rejuvenate, re- give rebirth to, to snooker. It was in a dire state 10 years ago, prize money at three and a half million. And currently this next year we'll be on 17 million. So we've done well, but like everything else in life, whether it's a business, a sport or a relationship, complacency is the biggest killer. So we're looking for a relaunch to re-energize ourselves after a 10-year cycle as we plan the next 10 years and as part of that we decided that we need to upgrade our image to improve our what they the experts call your IP value your brand value of your sport what came through from that conversation with all our key people at World Snooker is a new image World Snooker Tour rather than World Snooker brings it more in line with the ATP Tennis Tour the PGA Tour in other words sports that have grown significantly by appearing to the world that they are progressive and they are worth support so it's a launch pad vehicle for the next 10 years when we hope to significantly increase 
prize money further and to grow the, the reach of our sport. It brings us into more likely this new digital age of which you are clearly a beneficiary. Mm. Taking podcasts, taking sport to an audience that can listen to it where they want to listen to social it, media as well on whatever social media platform they cheer they care to if you like it represents the change away from basic lineal television before digital age began and social media began podcast this didn't exist no for, it's no, a quantum not, change yeah. in the no. world of sport and we need to change with it we need to embrace a younger audience we need to show people that they can aspire to be a top player and we need to make sure the rewards are there for those top players. So this is what may just appear three small letters. is a significant stage of the next stage of snooker and its development into a truly global sport that sits alongside other great sports like tennis and golf at that level and not the poor relation. And we're all very optimistic. We're very positive about the start we've made so far in snooker but we're all aware that we don't suffer complacency and we always look for the next level to achieve. And moving forward, do you think, how much potential do you think snooker has to grow over the next 10, 20, 25 years? The more I look at the opportunities to communicate to targeted audiences around the world, the more optimistic I become. You know, we've been experimenting very much with DAZN, um, which is the sports streaming service, which is successfully launched now in japan germany austria switzerland spain italy canada usa brazil and looks set to become the netflix of sport what this relationship has given us is data and information on who our viewers are and where they come from and the more we experiment with the zone the more we see that snooker is in fact a global brand that there is interest in Places like North America, which I never really thought would have a big no, snooker following, no. there is a significant number of fans out there, whether they be, I don't know, Asian fans that live in America, expats, or whether they're just curious, the people that like the drama that snooker can become. And what we see that we have an opportunity now with a monetarized plan on subscription streaming services, which can actually take us into every single country in the world. Now, clearly that has to be backed up by grassroots investments and by hopefully government help to make sure that players have the facilities and the opportunity to compete. But the signs are very positive. And I think this is a sign and a world that's going to escalate in this, in this way because young people today, they just don't watch TV like they used well, to. Well, Netflix is all streaming now, isn't it? Totally. And whether it's on your mobile, whether it's on your tablet, whatever way it is, whether it's on your smart TV... There's another way to access programming, and people probably are tired, particularly young people are tired of big monthly subscriptions in America to cable networks, for example, or even in, in the UK to Sky, when they know what they want to watch and they know when they want to watch it. And they are the customer, and we have to listen to the customers. So this relaunch is about us listening to the customers of the world and then taking our product out to them, monetizing that project and then reinvested into prize funds to make us stand alongside the golfs and the tennises of this world and I think it's a journey that will be successfully achieved. And the tour's about to head to Saudi Arabia for yep. the first time in October this year. Yep. You talked about North America, could we, you know, we're going to see a snooker boom in the Middle East, do you think? Well, I think the Saudi is very interesting. I mean, obviously, clearly there's lots of political issues that everyone wants to talk about, but I'm going to focus on the sporting aspect. From a sporting sense, Middle East Although we were there in the 80s and early 90s, 
hasn't been a productive market for us. And yet there's a huge amount of snooker interest. I've been going out from, from Saudi, look at Iran with a couple of players on tour. We know there's big interest in Bahrain, Abu Dhabi, Dubai. But we're not there. And the deal with the, the, the 10-year deal with the Saudi government has given us the opportunity not just to take a massive event there, the biggest prize money event in the world, but also to get involved in the infrastructure of snooker, to start academies, to start educating coaches, referees, where we can actually leave a legacy of the sport, not just move in, take the money, move out. This is a 12-month operation of players' visits and coaching visits, schools, universities, colleges, trying to spread the gospel of snooker. And Saudi government, to their credit, have been prepared to commit a 10-year term on this, which is a massive deal for us and potentially a massive deal for snooker. And we'll send out the message of the way we feel that we can advance our sport in different territories. We're going to go back to the big painting now because that's the lady playing the shot is in a lovely, great big pink dress there. Hmm. And that is from several hundred years ago. And right now, uh, in snooker and darts, we had this, the darts world championship. We saw a woman win a match for the first time, which was oh, which really? was phenomenal. Phenomenal. And how much would you like to see that picture being on television? Oh. Maybe not in the big big pink dress from the Renaissance no, no, period, no, no, but no, no. you know, a female snooker player compete at the Crucible. And there's no reason why not. I mean, I think people sometimes misread the fact that women have had an opportunity, perhaps not enough, of participating at the Crucible, but they haven't been good enough to get through the qualifying rounds. Uh, You can't fast-track someone through to the Crucible because, obviously, the schedule of play and the seeding is in structure and it's part of history. But, of course, when we look at the market that we are trying to appeal to, the global market, it's men and women, it's not just men. In many ways, we haven't tapped the female market. There are, of course, women that come to snooker. There are, of course, many women that play snooker, but not enough. And so this represents in any business, you look and say, if I see a huge untapped market, do I ignore it or do I go for it? But to do that, you need the flag bearers, you need the pioneers, you need the people that break the barriers. We saw Fallon Sherrock in the World Darts Championships beat two men on the stage at the World Championships. First time in history a woman has ever beaten a man. And no earthly reason why they shouldn't continue beating men if they are sacrificed their life and they're dedicated to their cause and they have that special piece of ability and I'm sure that equally applies to snooker we need to work on more opportunities for for everyone in this game juniors women there are no boundaries it's a level playing field it's a meritocracy it's purely down to ability these are changing times women are getting much more involved in sport to the benefit of sport and to themselves and their career and goals and ambitions dreams we've just got to give them the way forward and whilst we can't help them win we can certainly give them that opportunity and it's 10 years since you, you took uh, control of World Snooker and obviously lots of changes since then. Yep. When, if you look back to 2010, when you, when you took over, did you really think that it was going to become a truly global sport? Has it, has it got <sighs> bigger than you thought? Has it gone, you know? It's been, an, you know, in some ways it's been an easier job than I thought it would be. And in some ways, like everything, there's been more complications that you probably don't consider at the time. I mean, at the time of taking over, I remember my good mate Steve Davis saying to me, you're 62, do you really need this aggravation? The games in the doldrums, months without tournaments, etc., etc." It sounds peculiar because I'm a numbers man and very much a commercial animal, but I started my sporting world in my life in snooker. And although it sounds a bit cheesy, I really felt as if I owed the sport something. Um, it's given me a lot of pleasure, it's made me a lot of money, changed my life. Steve Davis and Snooker changed my life, no question. From 1974, I did my first event, 
It's 45 years ago. And I wanted to go back because I felt that the governing bodies and the people running the game were not doing it properly. I have quite a lot of experience, huge amount of experience in the world of professional sport, television, commercialisation. And I felt I could add something to it. But I was quite surprised that it, it, there was a few basic principles that we followed that, that worked very quickly. One was to create more activity. Two was to increase the media presence. And three was to maximise your commercial revenues better by negotiation. And really, it wasn't that difficult. I'm not saying you could have done it because you I, might could, have done I couldn't it. have done well, it. You, no, you never know, do you? You know. No. But it was something that I was good at, and it, it fitted. Along the way, there was a few hiccups. You know, obviously, we had a few betting scandals, integrity issues that had to be dealt with, which were very tiresome and very annoying. There's always going to be personality problems within a sport because everyone's different and everyone's got their own view and they're. In some cases, players' views differ from mine because selfishly they look and ask the question, how does this affect me? I take a more global view and say, how does this affect the sport? And of course, I back my own judgment as I've done my whole life. And it's overall, I think I'm happy of the progress we've made. I'm slightly ahead of where I thought we'd be Mm. to answer your question. It slightly surprised me, but it shouldn't have done. The bigger events get bigger. The World Championships is the Blue Ribbon event of the game. But the Masters is something special at Alexandra Palace. The UK Championships is the third of the Triple Crown with the support of BBC. But what we have seen is the globalisation has taken, I think it has grown faster than I thought. The audiences on Eurosport, the fact that people that don't play snooker will regularly watch it as a form of entertainment as the numbers that's achieved has amazed me and delighted me at the same time. China, of course, continues to be one of our biggest markets. And that, again, not, not an area without problems of its own, but some an area that the government at least are investing in the sport, unlike a lot of governments, including ours, that doesn't. Uh, and they've produced a host of world-class players. They've included snooker in the school's curriculum. It's become part of their society. And... It's a very good game for many, many reasons. And I think it's added to the Chinese way of life and it's improved, I think it's approved the appeal of snooker as a sport. But I believe that can be done all over the world. I think India's waiting for it. I think Africa's waiting. I think South America's a huge potential. North America, which as I said earlier, I didn't believe had potential. I suddenly think has got terrific potential, as has Canada. So we really shouldn't put restrictions on ourselves. We should not just go where the money is, but go where to countries that have the same attitude to us about the proper way of spreading sport. And I think Saudi Arabia ticks those boxes in terms of they're prepared to make an investment in their own people. And of course, they want to see them be successful. And as you develop sport, the one thing you need every year is local heroes. So you won't get them in a game as difficult as snooker. But take Ding in China. Ding Junhui has been major. I mean, if you go back to China, 1984... I took the game to China for the first time and did a billiards exhibition with Rex Williams and Steve Davis in the Great Hall of the People for Chai Ping, the president of China, and his innermost cabinet of about 20 guys, all in their 80s. And they remember billiards from their youth because it, it was outlawed under the administration of the 60s and 70s. But from that small germ, we have taken over and become one of the top three sports in China. So it shows you what can be achieved. And the question is... Why can't we do that everywhere? Well, it takes time, but I think we have the manpower and the management now to get behind these pushes. 
And places like Saudi Arabia coming over and saying, look, we'd like to commit for 10 years is a pivotal moment for our sport. And uh, you mentioned the Masters as being part of the, the Triple Crown. The next week, uh, we're seeing a big change as well to the arena layout uh, with more corporate and VIP options. So is, there like a, is that a direction you're, you're, you're heading in in terms of the fan experience at the big venues? Well, I think you, fan experience is absolutely vital because without fans, you don't have atmosphere. Without atmosphere, you have poor TV programmes. Poor TV programmes reduce your sponsorship level. It all comes back to the fan. But what we have to do is we have to listen to the market and understand what the fan is and what the fan wants. And there are clearly levels. Some football supporters would rather stand in the stands. Others would cut their arm off to be in the director's box. So in snooker, we're listening to the market. And the market tells us there is a limited demand at the very top end of something very special and at the masters we're doing something very special fine dining separate box luxury seats the best view in the house for a certain market but we never lose track of the fact that we are the sport of the people and therefore a lot of those people can't afford those type of prices so the vast majority of the seats of course are available and we hope are reasonable prices because we don't want any barriers to anyone to enjoy the world of snooker. But we do listen, and obviously we run a business model, and we try and maximise our revenues, because by doing that, we can grow as a sport to everyone's benefit. Now, before we have a little break, uh, one of the things, one of the features we do on with all the players, all the interviews on the podcast, is we ask them about the worst job they've done. Now, a little birdie told me that you used to pick tomatoes. Is that right? Yeah, that was probably one of the worst jobs. Yeah. I think it's my first job. I think I was 12 or 13 years old. And I got a summer job in the greenhouses in Waltham Abbey picking tomatoes. And on day one, which I thought was great, I was getting one and ten pence an hour, which in old money. I suppose that equates to about eight or nine p an hour. But I could only do three hours a day because I was under 16. But they said I can eat as many tomatoes as I like. Well, on the first day, I probably ate six or seven pounds worth of tomatoes. And I don't think I ate another one for 20 or 30 years after that. I was so sick of tomatoes. But if anyone's ever done it, and you're just picking, not picking tomatoes, you're picking the leaves around the tomatoes so that the sun gets through to the tomatoes. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. But what it does do is, although you wear gloves... You end up stinking of tomatoes. I cannot tell you the smell. It goes through the gloves. Your hands become green first, then black and green. It is the most disgusting job. And if anyone else out there has tried it, they have my sympathies. Why on earth then did you go into a sport where you have 15 red circles on a table? Don't you just just look at that every time and think tomatoes? It all brings it back. That was the 20 or 30 years that developed in between that period until... Therapy finally kicked in and I was cured of my tomato allergy. Right, we're going to have a little break and then when we return, we're going to see how Barry fares with our quick fire questions. Uh, Right, we're back. I'm with Barry Hernan in his office. During the break, we had a walk around, we had a look at the paintings. Um, I still think I can do a decent job being his painter, but we'll see what happens. So we ask these all to all the players, Barry Hearn. So first question, what's your biggest break? In practice, 85. In a match, 59. Who would win a best of three frames between you and Eddie Hearn? Me. Score, 3-0, 2-1? 3-0. He is much too aggressive to understand the touch game and the rules of snooker. What about... He's a better pool player. But I would still be in 3-0 at pool because I don't ever believe I should let my son win an argument, let alone a game of anything significant. What about boxing? Uh, last time, we had a very well-publicised fight, the two of us, when he was 16 and I was 44. Proper fight, small gloves, head guards and gum shields. Uh, I hit him with my best shot in the first round and he didn't fall over and I thought, 
I could have a problem here. And he dropped me twice with body shots in the second round. We never had the third round. So I've got to give that one to him. Darts? Darts, both of us pepper the wall more than the dartboard. I put a dartboard up in my house and I am trying to get better. And we are both useless. Score would be 0-0. Whose safety game in snooker do you most admire? Uh, obviously, I played hundreds of hundreds of frames with Steve Davis over the early years. And he used to tie me in knots. I used to get 70. We used to play best of 101 frames. And I would get 70 start. And the bet was the loser had to wash the winner's car. And Steve Davis had the cleanest car in Romford. So I need say no more. So I have to give his safety game at my age now, you know, as you get older, everything in the past is much better because you're looking back. So I give Steve the nod on safety game, but in fairness, if probably I was being super realistic, I might go for Mark Selby or John Higgins. Who's potting game? Obviously, Ronnie is the number one of all time, an absolute genius at potting, and Judd Trump looks set to emulate him. What's your favourite album? My favourite album is Tom Paxton's Greatest Hits. If you've never listened to Tom Paxton, don't miss it. He's now in his mid-80s. I've been following him since 1967 when he was the opening act at the Isle of Wight Festival and Bob Dylan was the chief act. And he came to my birthday party when I was 70 and did an hour and a half concert in my garden for a night I will never forget my entire life. Right. Finally, you are hosting a dinner party. Yep. You can invite one snooker player, past or present, mm. someone from another sport, past yep. or present, a musician, which I think we've just answered, and an animal. So who and what? Well, well, it's easy for me. Obviously, the snooker player has to be Steve Davis. He's been my best friend for 50 years nearly. Uh, I've managed him. I still manage him. And he, although, of course, has a musical career now, so he has much more strings to his bow, he remains the greatest, one of the great influences of my life. Steve Davis is a shoe-in. As far as music's concerned, as I mentioned earlier, to have the one and only legendary Tom Paxton in my presence, I sat next to him at dinner, I was starstruck for an hour, we talked about Woody Guthrie and all the early days of country and western, we talked about Nashville, we talked about protest and Vietnam, that was just a wonderful day, so he has to have chair number two. Number three was... Someone from another sport. Someone from another sport. I would probably pick Anthony Joshua as a boxer because... He's very educated in terms of he's entertaining, he's great company, he's honest, and he also performs at the very highest level. So he has, I'm in awe of Anthony Joshua and his ability. And number four, the animal I would bring without doubt is my son, Eddie Hearn, who's the biggest animal I know, <laughs> but the most successful boxing promoter in the world and someone who, if I die tomorrow, it doesn't really matter because every time he opens his mouth, he sounds like me. Barry Hearn, thank you very much. It's a pleasure.